0: And try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Joel Jean, CEO and co-founder of Swift Solar. Swift Solar was founded in 2017 by leading perovskite scientists from Stanford, MIT, Cambridge, Oxford, and the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. They believe that solar energy has vast untapped potential to reduce inequity and protect planetary health in the face of global climate change. And they also believe that today's solar technology is good, but not good enough. They believe that what we build today should serve humanity forever. And together, they're working to make that happen. Now, perovskite was new to me, but I've been hearing a lot about it and wanted to understand it better, understand where it fits in the solar landscape understand where the solar landscape fits in the broader renewables and clean energy transition, and also, of course, Swift Solar's lane, their progress to date, what's coming next, their long vision, and if they're wildly successful, what they've achieved. Well, friends, that's exactly what we cover in this episode. So without further ado, Joel, welcome to the show.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here.
0: Well, I'm psyched to have you. I have to say it's a little intimidating because this is a subject that I am ill-equipped to talk about, but obviously solar is important. And to the extent that perovskites can be disruptive and help solar evolve and play a more meaningful role faster, that feels important. And I've gotten to know you a bit and you're a smart guy who I know is climate motivated. And so, hey, let's take 45 minutes or an hour and talk about
1: Swift Solar. That sounds awesome.
0: So thanks for agreeing to come on the show. The way we typically start is just kind of take things from the top. So maybe just talk about Swift Solar and what it is that the company is trying to do.
1: I think I have to start with climate, actually. And I think that that maybe makes a lot of sense, given your audience. I mean, I think there's a lot of perception here that perhaps in this community and at large that solar is kind of solved. There's a lot of discussion about how we have cheap solar, we have cheap wind, batteries are getting solved. Maybe these technologies are solved. So we should instead put all of our efforts into ag and cement and steel and aviation. I mean, I think that's a lot of that is very true. I mean, I can't deny that solar's come a long way and it's had a really good place for climate. And I think that's a great thing. So even though that is the dominant narrative and it, it's not great for Swift, especially in terms of things like fundraising, I think it's great for the world. And I think the flip side of that is that If we don't think that climate's going to be solved in the next, say, 10 years, as one example, or if we do rely on solar to solve most of the climate problem, let's say like 20 to 50% of electrification or decarbonization in the power system, power sector, I do think it's worth continuing to work on better and better solar. A new solar technology with better fundamentals, I think, still has a lot of potential to contribute to climate here. So that's just kind of a perspective here where even if silicon is good enough for today, if you're looking at all of these low carbon pathways and integrated assessment models and power system models, they're all relying on solar by mid-century for 20, 30, 40% of electricity. And I think it would be a big mistake to stop innovating because if you're talking about even the possibility of reducing the cost of solar by say 10, 20, 30%, which is possible with more efficient PV and new module formats, that's... A cent or two per kilowatt hour isn't, isn't a lot, but at these scales, it's you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars a year in value. So I guess that's kind of like the high level picture of why I think solar still matters for climate, even if it's not on the critical path right now.
0: And I know we still have to get to Swift Solar and what you're doing, but just one kind of follow on question there is I mean, you say it's on a good path and that that narrative is true, but that it would be better to keep innovating. What is it about where it is today that will hold it back from getting to where it needs to go? Or, I guess, said another way, what could be changed about solar to accelerate its adoption curve?
1: I think it comes down to the cost structure for solar. So, if you look at the cost structure, especially in the US, but in a lot of places, the module, the solar panels themselves are no longer the majority of the cost. So in the US, in say a rooftop, residential rooftop system, the panel's about 30 cents a watt, 40 cents a watt, and the full system's over $2 a watt. So 80 plus percent comes from balance of system, all the other stuff, the racking, the wiring, the permitting, interconnection, installation labor, all these other things. And if you kind of look at that You might ask, why are we even working on the technology? We should solve all those things. And I think there's a lot of value in solving those things, the soft costs. And a lot of that is things that policy can help with. But on the other side of that is that you actually get a lot of leverage in solving that balance of system cost problem by having a more efficient panel. So if you have a more efficient panel, you get more watts out per square meter. You put up the same number of panels, you get more watts. So that actually reduces the dollars per watt cost of everything else. So technology there still has leverage, if that makes sense.
0: Which aspect of that are you trying to tackle with the company?
1: With Swift, we're working on a new kind of technology, a new kind of photovoltaic material and device structure. So the material is called perovskites. So perovskites just refer to the general crystal structure. The original perovskite is a mineral found by this Russian mineralogist called Lev Perovsky. So perovskite, but it's only really been used recently for solar applications because it's more of a man-made kind of perovskite. So this material lets you make a very efficient solar cell. And in particular, by tuning the material, you can actually tune the composition pretty easily just by swapping out some of the ions. So perovskites have this ABX3 crystal structure. So you can switch out the A, you can switch out the B, you can switch out the X. And each of those allows you to tune things like what color of light that material absorbs. So what we do is actually tune... The perovskite so we make two different perovskites stack them on top of each other and each one absorbs different parts of the solar spectrum so the top perovskite is a wide band gap we call it so it absorbs more like blue and high energy light and then the bottom absorbs more red and near infrared and because you're optimizing for different parts of the solar spectrum with these two cells you do end up with a more efficient cell so you're pushing the efficiency limit up from about 30 percent theoretically 29 and a half for silicon to about 45. And that's a big theoretical jump, certainly, and the practical performance kind of follows along.
0: So what is the dominant material that's used today in solar? And also, is it consistent from residential to large-scale commercial and, or utility even and everything in between, or does it depend?
1: So today, about 95% of the market is silicon, crystalline silicon, and about two-thirds of that comes out of China. Silicon is certainly the dominant technology. It's been around since Bell Labs in the 1950s, been developed over many, many years. A lot of government support, a lot of investment, private investment, and that's it's really gone to this point where Silicon is just considered kind of the standard. And certainly there are thin film companies that have been somewhat successful. So First Solar is probably the most successful example of a thin film company. They use cadmium telluride, which is a very stable and I think good photovoltaic material. And they've been building their technology for the last 20, 25 years and turning that into a good alternative to silicon, in particular in utility-scale kind of applications. They do very well in higher temperatures, so you can put them out in the desert and have higher energy yield, kilowatt hours per kilowatt installed than silicon, but it's still a small fraction of the market.
0: If you asked experts, and I guess it depends on where these experts sit, but let's say... The senior folks from the utilities or maybe from the project developers that are building these big commercial grade solar farms or things like that. If you ask them if silicon will continue to be dominant in five years, 10 years, 20 years, what would they say?
1: Great question. I think it'd be great to talk to a lot more of those. The ones I have talked to, I think, would say that certainly in the next five or 10 years, they're going to be dominant. And usually these folks aren't looking beyond that. They're looking to where can I procure modules that are bankable? today or in the next two to three years. So I haven't really talked to anyone who's saying, can I look out 10, 15 years and replace silicon with a new technology? Certainly they hope there's more innovation. They want to see it get more efficient. They want to see it get easier to install, but it's more of an incremental kind of development.
0: And I read that this came out of some work that you and your co-founders were doing during your PhDs, what was the initial impetus to pick this area for investigation, and how did you come upon the approach to formulate your research?
1: I don't want to make it sound like it's we're the only ones who do this. It's a huge research community around the world. so I have a lot of people working on this in the academic community and many startups and companies working on it now too. so certainly we're one of many. I do think that many of my co-founders were pioneers in this space, so they started working on it back in about 2013 or so.
0: And this space being perovskites? or Perovskites,
1: yeah. Are, okay. are you asking about perovskites or kind of solar more broadly?
0: I'm actually just asking about the research that you and your co-founders did that led to the formation of the company.
1: Okay, yeah, a little more specific. So yeah, I guess we have six co-founders and my five co-founders did PhDs and postdocs working on perovskite tandem technology or perovskites in general. So a lot of this work was done at Oxford and at stanford and uw and ultimately at nrel and they were really pushing for this technology and two of my co-founders giles and thomas were the ones who first developed these all perovskite tandems so stacking two perovskite cells on top of each other another co-founder kevin set the first world record for perovskites on silicon as a perovskite silicon tandem so another alternative product or technology type so they were doing this kind of very very good work on pioneering these high efficiency tandem cells and at MIT, I was doing my PhD and ultimately leading a research program there, working on very lightweight and flexible solar cells, and particularly looking at applications off-grid in India. So things like flexible portable panels for solar water pumping in India, or for powering rickshaws in India, things like that, sponsored by the Tata Trusts. So I was focusing a lot on the markets, thinking about sort of where the economics of solar are going. All of my co-founders were working deep on the technology and pushing that forward. We ended up coming together over Skype over four different time zones in 2016 and started these conversations about where would a new technology like perovskites, which were kind of up and coming, be able to fit into the market. And I think it was really at that point that we realized that there was this scope for if you can get more efficient, potentially have different formats, like lightweight and flexible formats and lower cost, that's kind of like the Holy Grail. You can check all the boxes and you do need to check all the boxes in solar to be competitive.
0: So was there a light bulb moment where this transition from research to a company or was it a more gradual process than that?
1: I think it was a very gradual process because we spent the first two years really exploring, first two years of coming together as a group, really just exploring the different options for what kind of technology you choose, what kind of manufacturing approaches you take, talking to customers, potential customers, and looking at where could you potentially deploy these things. So it was really I think, a learning process for all of us and really getting to know each other as a team. And I think that's been that early work, having that freedom to continue to work in the academic setting, but then still be able to explore the commercial opportunities was really valuable. And I think we're really thankful to have had that opportunity working out of MIT, Stanford, UW, NREL, and Cambridge. So all these different universities were we're able to do this.
0: And so even if it was a gradual process, what were the things that you pieced together and learned over time that gave you the confidence that this needed to exist as a company?
1: I'm not sure there were any fundamental insights, any like, (laughs) bam, like that's what we need to do kind of thing. I think we'd all been working and thinking about solar for, at that point, five plus years. And I think you kind of gather a lot of these pieces, I think, that need to go into starting a company over time. Even as a researcher, especially if you're kind of thinking ahead to where these technologies you work on have impact in the market, I think you do start to gather that over time. I think some of the key pieces for us were bringing this group together, deciding that we wanted to work together. I think the insights around customers and specifically what kind of... You could think of a million things to do with a solar panel, especially if you can make it lightweight or flexible, but most of them are probably not very good markets. They're either super custom or very low volumes or people aren't willing to pay enough for it. It's just a commodity and not a high value thing. And maybe the most important is that in a lot of these places, Silicon is going to be just as good an option as a new technology. As a new company and a new technology, you're never going to compete with Silicon on dollars per watt out of the gate. You need to be at massive scale to do that. So a big part of our journey was really identifying what kinds of early markets really make sense for this kind of technology.
0: And so what year did you actually incorporate the business?
1: We incorporated in November 2017.
0: Got it. And then once the business was incorporated, was it pretty much just operating similarly to as you had been as a group when it was just research, or did things start to change in terms of how you were going about it?
1: Part of the impetus was actually because we had some investors who were interested in putting in some money. So I think that we had to incorporate then. We also had a grant that was coming in that required that. So we were able to stay in the academic setting for another. I think six to nine months working, kind of laying that groundwork to spin out. And it was only in mid 2018, in the summer when we actually all kind of came together at NREL to spin out the companies, to work full-time on it. So yeah, I think that was a gradual transition as we got funding in, as we got the team together and had the logistics worked out.
0: And so when you did step out and you had some funding and it was time to treat it like a company, was it at that point that you started investigating the best markets? And tell me a little bit about that process of evaluating markets and then either where you ended up or where you are in that exploration today.
1: A lot of that first couple of years actually before we incorporated was doing this kind of work. And I think we were lucky in university settings to be able to do a lot of that exploration. Certainly at multiple places, we did these kind of customer discovery programs where you spend a lot of time, you interview Hundreds of customers, and you have conversations about what are their needs, right? You really focus on what is it that these customers are looking for, and can you help satisfy that with the technology or product or service? So I think we had been doing this all along, and it wasn't like we had a step change when we spun out. I think, if anything, we dug deeper into the technology at that point because we could, we're all there in person, we could work together in, in the lab. I think the customer stuff has just been ongoing in the background, and especially with COVID last year, I think we were able to ramp that up even more. So in terms of where we actually ended up, there's a set of markets that we think are very promising. So one of them is sort of aerospace, where you need a very, very lightweight product, maybe naturally, to keep something like a high-altitude UAV in the air for months at a time, or for satellites where you need very efficient, lightweight solar, because obviously you need to get out into space. So launch costs are high. So for all these kind of aerospace-type applications, there's a very high value in having efficient very lightweight solar. That I think is for one exciting area for us. And I can certainly talk about more if you're interested.
0: Great. And what about the product itself? So where are you in terms of development and where do you need to be when you actually feel like you'll be ready for wide-scale deployment? And how does that phasing work in between now and then?
1: That actually reminds me. So I think a big part of this first couple of years, sorry to go back to your last question, but a lot of the, the, development was actually mapping out that course to get to scale. Because it's, I think, one of the big stumbling blocks for the first generation of solar companies, aside from all the macro issues in China and all those things, was not having that like, kind of stepping stones to market. It was really like, oh, we have $100 million of VC money now. Our competitors do too. We need to go and build that big factory. <laughs> and I think you've probably talked to a lot of investors who founded that trap and a lot of companies that founded that trap. China aside, I think that was one of the big issues in the first wave of solar companies in that you if you scale up a, a factory before you're able to have a refined process and a high efficiency compelling product with product market fit, I think you're gonna waste a lot of money. You're gonna be retooling your factory at a stage when it's very expensive to do so on venture dollars. That was a lot of the development early on. And in terms of our pathway or where we are on that stepping stone approach, I think We're still early. We're still in the product development phase. We can make small mini modules, things kind of on the four to six inch scale right now. And they're not as efficient as they are on the very small one inch or smaller scale that we would use for R&D. We still do a lot of development on these small sub-centimeter square kind of areas, just because you can do a lot more iterations that way and you waste a lot less material. So we still are in the R&D scale. We have a 10,000 square foot facility with mostly geared towards R&D, but Actually, for these like four to six inch mini modules that I'm talking about, that actually can be our first product, and we're excited to actually deploy those with customers in the next six to eighteen months, which is kind of our runway into our next round and really prove out that there's a lot of demand for this. And then from there, we can start to scale to larger products and also start to scale our manufacturing.
0: And so, when you're bringing a company like this to market, how do you think about grants versus equity capital? versus project finance, and first of its kind, and second and beyond, and all that kind of stuff. It's still a little fuzzy for me when I'm trying to piece together the best source of capital for businesses of this nature.
1: It's a great question. I think it's still a little fuzzy for me too. I wish there was a single answer. I think there are a few pieces too that all of those things I think have a role to play. Certainly, we had a kind of funny trajectory, I think, where we had some super angels who we were lucky enough to run across who were excited about what we are doing and ready to back it. I think we've also had four government grants, through a couple through DOE and DOD and NSF, and I think those were very helpful as well. Part of that as validation and partly as actual capital to go and build. I think the challenge that we've seen with the government funding is that even though it's nominally geared towards developing the technology and kind of helping, I think, helping bring them into the market, what we found is the timeline is often very, very long for when you apply you maybe wait for six, nine months to get an answer, and then maybe another three to six months to negotiate the contract. And then finally, the award starts. And then there's a lot of reporting and a lot of just a lot of structure around that capital. And I think that so far, for the amount of capital that we've come across, at least for perovskites, has been limiting. So we've been very fortunate to have the outside capital, these super angels who are very flexible and have that longer view than a more traditional VC fund to kind of support that and be able to work flexibly with us.
0: Now, do you think that when these investors are coming in, is it the financial opportunity that's driving them or is it the problem that you're solving? What do you think is motivating them to write these early checks?
1: It's a bit of both. I mean, for the angels that we have, I think it's a lot of it's around climate and the mission And the fact that if we are successful here and are able to make solar more affordable and more accessible broadly, I think that's a lot of value being created. I think they do believe that that's going to impact climate. It is going to impact kind of the bottom line of the company. And the path we've chosen does make it not a commodity product. Certainly the majority of our products would not be aiming for commodity solar. So I think that's kind of a way we framed it so that it's not just purely about being altruistic. It's also building a strong business. And I think that's important for us and for our investors. Certainly, we have other investors. We have a couple strategics actually in our seed round. And for them, it's slightly different motivations. One of them is a Fortune 500 telecom company. They want to deploy lightweight, flexible solar on their products. And then another one is a major, one of the top 10 silicon PV cell and module manufacturers. And they're keen to work on perovskite and silicon tandems and kind of supplement their existing products. There's a lot of different motivations depending on kind of which set of investors we're looking at.
0: From an impact standpoint, what does the success case look like if the company is successful beyond your wildest dreams? What have you achieved?
1: I think if we're wildly successful, we would be out deploying many, many gigawatts of solar. And I think we would be seeing very different approaches to deploying solar as well compared to our typical shower door kind of modules today, bolt them to the roof. And I think we'd be very excited to be able to see solar going everywhere in many places where you wouldn't deploy solar today. So I mean, kind of new formats of, for example, flexible shingles that are integrated into your roof, kind of a flexible version of Tesla solar roof. You could see it going into things like electric vehicles, where you can have self-charging vehicles under the sun. Where you actually can get a lot of miles out of it and a lot of convenience and co2 savings from not plugging in your electric vehicle you see solar all over trucks and buses and kind of all over the place where you might think that sunlight's not energy dense enough or it doesn't make sense to put solar in directly but there is actually a lot of value to the consumer in the end to having that and i think in the very end the lowest cost solution is often going to be the more traditional format because of the cost of flexible packaging, if you want to make a flexible kind of solar product. So right now, our vision is that in the end, we can go after a glass-based module, but just make it the most efficient and lowest cost product out there. And I think that could have a major impact on emissions, on solar deployment, on climate.
0: And you mentioned that you have 12 or 18 months of runway. I think I heard that right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but what are the key milestones that you... Are driving towards as a company between now and then?
1: A lot of them are around continuing to push the technology and manufacturing forward. I think the biggest piece is really de-risking the customer side. So showing that there's early customer demand for the kind of prototypes that we're going to hand over to customers in the very short term. Those are the set of milestones, like customers coming in and saying, hey, this is really cool. We actually want to, if you can produce this with the kind of spec sheet that you believe you can, that will buy a lot of it. And I think those kind of conditional purchase orders or commitment letters, things like that to purchase are going to be really valuable for us and are the key milestones that we really need to hit with all the R&D going on in the background.
0: I don't know a lot about the Silicon landscape, but I assume that there's some large players that are dominant in the market in terms of the Silicon manufacturing. And if that's not the case, please correct me if I'm wrong, or actually even better, maybe talk a bit about that landscape. But my question, as well as just getting some more color on that landscape, is what is stopping those larger players from dominating perovskites as well?
1: It's a great question. So first, I guess the landscape of silicon PV, there's primarily when we talk about silicon PV, it's going to be the cell and module manufacturing. Certainly there's upstream, a lot of the processing of raw polysilicon and turning that into wafers but let's talk about kind of cell conversion and module manufacturing. And for that, there certainly are very, very large players. You've probably heard of many of them, the kind of Trinas and Longis. Most of them are in China, to be frank. So a lot of these big companies, yes, absolutely, they're interested in perovskites. And many of them, I think almost all of the ones we've talked to have looked at perovskites as the next step on their roadmap or a couple of steps down the line. A lot of it is because if you look at Silicon's roadmap, the best cells today are 26, 265 percent efficient in manufacturing, maybe more like 25, 24, 25. And the modules today are around 20. So they're kind of saying, yeah, there's some headroom to improve, make it more efficient, maybe more affordable. But five years out, they're kind of looking at their roadmaps and saying, what's next? And actually on the industry roadmap, the ITRPV, International Technology Roadmap for PVs, they're actually showing tandems in that three to five plus year range as a growing part of the market. So I think they do see that as an important piece, but it's rather than kind of cannibalizing their existing market, I think a lot of it's going to be supplementing it with perovskite silicon tandems. And I think suddenly it is a risk. It's hard to tell what's going on in China. There is a lot of private capital going into perovskites, both perovskite startups and big companies. But I think there's an opportunity if you kind of chart your market pathway in a more unique way, I think not going head-on against silicon for rooftops or utility-scale PV, that you can build the product to a point where you can be a sustainable and competitive company. I think that's the only way, honestly, that you can be a sustainable and competitive PV company today. You can't just go run into that silicon wall.
0: And the larger players, historically, as they've moved into new areas or new materials, such as the Swift solar approach do they tend to do it by building or by acquisition?
1: Sorry, when new players tend to go into?
0: When the big players, so let's say, if the big players were gonna go from silicon into perovskites or silicon into whatever, but some kind of new line or big step forward or five years out, what's next kind of thing, do these companies tend to be acquisitive or do they tend to have a bias towards things that they build themselves?
1: That's really interesting because I think In the silicon world there's been very little acquisition i think the technology has actually if you look at a panel in 1985 it actually looks very similar to a panel today and certainly there's a lot of incremental innovation i think a lot of development on increasing wafer sizes making the cells more efficient using less material making the module overall more robust a lot of kind of stepwise innovations but i think there hasn't been a lot of kind of revolutionary innovation whether by acquisition or by internal development so I think that's kind of like the baseline where the industry is today. I think part of the challenge for acquisitions within the industry is that the margins are very, very small. So if you're looking at traditional markets, you're talking about gross margins that are, well, let's say in the few tens, maybe low 10%, then operating margins have historically been sometimes negative, sometimes 10%. I mean, it kind of varies a lot. So it is a very commodity market, and I think that's been one of the challenges for existing companies, even with huge balance sheets to go and either acquire new companies or spend a lot of money on R&D.
0: And I think what I'm hearing from you, and again, correct me if I'm misunderstanding or misstating, but is that the Silicon is kind of where it's at today. And even say in the medium term, like the next five years. But as you get further out, there's going to be kind of a local maxima. And that in order to continue to get solar down the cost curve and to keep innovating new materials, new processes, like there needs to be new and that perovskites are a promising candidate for that. And that you'll stay away from a strategy standpoint from the commodity categories and from the ones that are a direct threat to large players in the Silicon world and pick off these kind of niche high value categories where there's more room for differentiation. Is that correct?
1: I think that's very fair, especially in the short term. We do think long term there's value in going directly after these large markets, but I think the initial play, yes, definitely is not going head on.
0: So, Given that it sounds like the big players are putting some money into this area and that there's a number of smaller players competing, I guess the question I'd be irresponsible if I didn't ask is for whether I'm a potential investor or a potential partner or a potential customer or whoever, why should I believe that Swift Solar is going to win?
1: There's a few pieces we think are important here. We do have We believe one of the leading technical teams in the world working on perovskites and we've had a history of innovating in the space. And I think it is innovation on the technology and on manufacturing that is gonna really allow this technology to succeed if it does succeed in the end. So I think number one is the team. And I think second one is the technology, the choice. We are the only company working on all perovskite tandems, focusing on putting perovskites on top of perovskites. And I think that is the ultimate kind of best of all worlds scenario. If you can make that work, You're talking about more efficient, lightweight, flexible, more affordable. You kind of check all the boxes with this technology that you wouldn't be able to with even a perovskite on silicon kind of tandem approach. And we were the inventors of this technology from the start and I think have been pushing it forward. So we have a technology leadership role there too.
0: Is there an IP angle there as well?
1: Certainly, yeah. There's an IP position there. But I think a lot of it's also just trade secrets and just kind of innovating on all pieces of the cell stack and on manufacturing as well. So a lot of those things are not going to be patented, but they're kind of in-house IP. I think maybe one other side is this market strategy. And I think that's very important. You have to recognize the history. You have to recognize the incumbents and be smart about that. And I think we've been lucky enough to have very experienced people advising us and being able to kind of observe and learn from the market for a long time. And I think that's a critical piece of building a successful solar company.
0: And can you just talk a bit both about the fundraising history of the company, but also if you do execute in the next 12 or 18 months and you raise an optimal follow-on round, which I would envision would be required, what does that round look like in terms of size and also source of capital?
1: So far, we've raised about $16 in equity financing and about a million of grant money as well. So we've done a serious seed and a seed two round. We just announced the seed two actually last month of around nine and a half million. And that's what allows us to grow the team and actually prove out kind of this last step before we actually go into some more serious manufacturing, some more serious pilot manufacturing. So I think for as we look forward to this next round, it is going to be a bigger check size that we're looking for, a bigger chunk of capital to actually go and build out a first real pilot manufacturing line. And so, I mean, you can kind of imagine in the 20 million kind of range for a series A plus or minus a few five or 10 million, depending on what kind of other capital is out there. And I think the ideal source, I mean, I wouldn't say there's any single ideal source. I think so far we've had about a million and a half out of our total raised from VCs and some from strategics and then the rest, the majority is from angels and super angels so far. So I think diversifying that a bit, kind of getting more traditional venture support now that we're far enough along that I think we are more venture-backable in that sense, I think it would be very exciting. And having maybe more strategics involved as well could be exciting.
0: But it sounds like in your mind that 20 million or whatever the final number ends up being would be equity capital?
1: I think it would be primarily equity. We are hoping that with the support of the federal government these days, there could be a lot of support for US manufacturing. And that could be one way to help fund a first factory. Certainly, we wouldn't go and it'd be difficult to raise private debt for such a thing right now.
0: I'm curious. I mean, this is not necessarily a Swift Solar question, but a question I've just been kind of poking on in general. So I'm really excited to ask it to you because this is a great data point here. So, this type of first of its kind, 20 million, the decision for equity capital is it because it's the best of what's available, but it's really not optimal and there would be a better source, but that source doesn't exist? Or is it that equity actually does the job just fine and there's no gap?
1: I think you need to ask me that in two years. (laughs) But I, I do think that there are some major benefits of equity. It is very flexible. And I think that's important when you're at a stage still kind of developing the technology. As a counterexample, if you look at something like equipment financing, and you were to finance equipment with debt, you do need to get the debt provider's actual approval for this equipment. They need to make sure that they can have a resale market in case you end up screwing it up. So there's more constraints in, on timeline and on what you can actually do with that capital. Uh, equity is much more flexible. Obviously, it's dilutive. It's, there are limits to what you want to do with equity. So I think if there were kind of a risky debt alternative or something like that, maybe that would be ideal. could be a loan guarantee that's more tuned for smaller, not Tesla $500 million kind of factories, but smaller factories from the government, that would be really good. But yeah, I don't know what's the right answer right now, to be honest.
0: If you could wave your magic wand and change one thing that is outside of the scope of your or Swift Solar's control that would most accelerate your progress as a company, what would it be and how would you change it?
1: Well, I think coming at this from a founder's perspective, it's one maybe silly thing is wiping away cylindra, <laughs> The history of clean tech 1.0 where in film, solar has become a dirty word. And I think that's really been a barrier to fundraising. And honestly, like, of course, you need to have the right market strategy. You need to find customers and product market fit. But I think even with all that, there's a risk for a solar company coming along and not being able to raise that next round. And I think a lot of that's perception. So I've literally been told by multiple VCs that our LPs aren't going to let us invest in solar after Solyndra. So it's a sort of perspective, I think. And a lot of people think that, but aren't saying it.
0: So, I mean, here's your chance to kind of clear the air... I mean, what's your assessment of why Cylindra failed and why is this time different?
1: So I think it's not just Cylindra. Sorry, just to be a little bit broader, I don't want to singularly call them out. There was a whole wave, a lot of capital flowing in. I think there's a lot of reasons why it's different this time. I think the first time around, what we saw was a lot of these companies ran into some issues. I think in terms of the timing, it was just really bad. At the time, there was a big peak in polysilicon prices. And people looked at the price of silicon modules and thought that it was going to level out and performance was going to level out. It turned out it didn't. A lot of people tried to compete with silicon directly. It scaled up too fast, as we already talked about, and it ended up because of that running out of money. I think from what's different this time perspective, I think the questions of timing, I think it's a fundamentally just different world in 2020 versus 2010. There's a lot more momentum on climate change, as you've seen, and of course, been a part of building. We know where China stands. Fundamentally, we know kind of instead of being in this weird place where China is just starting to get its industry off the ground and it may put billions of dollars into subsidies or it may not, which was ten or fifteen years ago. Today, we know China going to support downstream markets, going to support manufacturing, and that's just how the world is. So you have to work around that. I think governments are more aware that we need to have domestic manufacturing and that energy is strategic and important for the country. And I think having things like SPACs as a potential exit strategy, for better or for worse, I think it is a new pathway for growth capital and exits, which wasn't really there in the first wave. So I think all of those kind of macro things are helpful. And I think being able to learn from all the challenges and these kind of strategic market challenges of the first wave of companies is also a big differentiator this time around.
0: So speaking to the listeners for a moment, for anyone that's listening and excited about what you're doing where do you need help and what kinds of people do you want to hear from?
1: I think there's a lot of people we'd love to hear from. I think number one would be potential customers, people who are excited about integrating solar into whatever it is they're building. But I think things like electric vehicles, electric trucks, and buses and drones, if you're thinking about solar, there's higher efficiency and lighter weight solar coming along. So I think that's something where we'd love to talk to people who are developing those kind of products. Certainly, maybe on hiring, we are thinking about business development and kind of bringing it right now we have a team of 18 people, all technical R&D kind of folks, except for me doing. So right now, a lot of it makes sense. We're trying to stay lean and do a lot of product development, but we would love to bring in more of kind of business talent and ability to go and actually connect with customers and sell some more directly. So I think those are maybe two big pieces and certainly funding if anyone's interested in investing
0: great. And is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners?
1: No, I think you're doing great things. Just glad to be here and be able to support it. Thank you. I'm
0: psyched to finally make this happen, Joel. And I learned a lot about Swift Solar and about perovskites. And I'm going to have to keep learning more. But this was a pretty action packed 45 minutes here. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And best of luck to you and to the whole Swift Solar team.
1: Thanks, Jason. Really appreciate it.
0: Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.